Welcome to The Kids Are All Right, the podcast that explores big global issues from a young and fresh perspective. I'm Noloazim Joacha, originally from South Africa. I moved to Paris, France three years ago to pursue a master's degree. I'm a news enthusiast and have always been interested in what young people think and are doing to address some of the things I read about in the news. Before we begin, here's a message from my colleague, Mega Thomas, who helped me produce this podcast. Hey there, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. The Kids Are All Right was produced by a team of students and aspiring journalists interested in learning more about some of the biggest issues facing the global community. From social media fame, to the Venezuelan crisis, to climate change, we've reached out to young people and experienced professionals alike in order to provide you with different perspectives on hot topics. We hope you enjoy it. Share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Kids All Right News or on Instagram at Kids Are All Right News. Openness has become a trademark of China, said Chinese President Xi Jinping on November 5th during the opening ceremony of the first China International Import Expo in Shanghai. But how is the ongoing trade war with the United States affecting Beijing's efforts to show the world that China can be a positive force for global trade? Reporter Savannah Jenkins explores the potential of the One Belt, One Road initiative and how the Trump administration's America First strategy could be opening up a large space for China to fill in the future. I'm sitting at the American Library in Paris, getting ready for my call with David, happening in about 20 minutes, just going over some notes here. Um, David Schlesinger, besides being a correspondent for News Decoder, is the founder and managing director of Tripod Advisors. Uh, before that, he was chairman of Thomas Reuters China, and by all means, uh, a China expert. So. I've reached out to him to discuss the One Belt, One Road initiative. Uh, should be a good talk. I think I'll start by quoting a Chinese proverb, which is Tong Chuang Yimang, which means you share the same bed, but you have different dreams. So uh, that's so I, really the way I see One Belt, One Road, because I think there are so many different views of One Belt, One Road, and what One Belt, One Road is depends a lot on where you are and who you are. For Xi Jinping, China's president, it's his vision of a new Silk Road expanding out towards the West into uh, into Central Europe, uh, Central Asia, going all the way through to Europe, going down Southeast Asia, Africa. Really, everything but the kitchen sink is being thrown into it at this point, going all the way down to Latin America in some cases, so way beyond what the original Silk Road ever was. So that, that's Xi Jinping. For Chinese propagandists, whether they work for state uh, media or whether they're just real China boosters, uh, One Belt, One Road is this new rejuvenation of China, a way to put China back into the, the center of the world to really show that China is a major world power with both uh, political and diplomatic and economic power to actually make investments and to, to change the world. For investment-hungry neighbors, One Belt Road is actually uh, mana from heaven. It's a way to get some investment into much-needed 
infrastructure to actually get China to help build up their economies. But there are also China-wary neighbors, like Malaysia, for example, mm. by India, who are really worried that One Belt, One Road is the way for China to start asserting its power over the region and power over them. That if China gets them to sign up for lots of loans or starts taking huge stakes in their own country's infrastructure, China will eventually have really un unnatural and unnecessary and unwelcome power over them. Then there are the financiers, people working in banks and brokerages who are just drooling at the thought of uh, new projects to finance and new ways for them to get involved you know, in Asia. So they're really uh, very hungry for it. And finally, there are the cynical and China-weary academics and journalists, I must say, who look at One Belt, One Road, just roll their eyes and say, oh, this is just another bunch of empty promises, empty dreams, empty investments. And then there's reality, whatever reality is, and they're looking to the future. And I guess for that, I'll switch from Chinese pro uh, proverbs to American movies and go back to 1989 and field of dreams and uh, James Earl Jones and Tony, if you build it, people will come. So I think if you get beyond the immediate problems, you're going to get to a point where One Belt, One Road is actually quite transformative in a way that will make China very influential. You know, Xi Jinping says this is a win-win situation, but is it actually a win-win? I mean, in some of these developing countries, is it necessary that they have a state-of-the-art airport? Some people are critical that this is kind of... Um, debt diplomacy, you know, so these countries are now indebted to China and at their own whim. Do you see that as a real problem? Well, I think it's, uh, the answer is a yes, but. Mm. Uh, yes, of course. You, If you take Chinese money, if you take Chinese companies in to build your infrastructure, there is an indebtedness, not only in financial terms, but also in political diplomatic terms. But is if China's not going to do it, who is? The U.S. is pulling back from its role in the world. Europe doesn't have extra money to start uh, building infrastructure. So if China doesn't build uh, roads and airports and uh, freight depots and uh, highways, uh, who's going to do it? Hearing David lay out the half dozen or so interpretations of the One Belt, One Road initiative, what did you learn? It was interesting, and I think how one sees China influences how they perceive this plan. So I decided to reach out to a former colleague and China enthusiast, Marco Dinobili, to get his thoughts on the matter. Hey, Marco. How are you? Nice to see you. You as well. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, I guess we can say, specifically the U.S., you know, the U.S., unlike China, will put sanctions, will refuse to work with countries who do not respect certain norms, especially yep. in terms of no interference policy. Yeah, exactly. And that's because usually, as you said, the U.S. has always tried to uh, use the good government's technique where you say, OK, if you do these kind of things, then we will help you economically. But what China does on the other side, it, it, China doesn't really care about these things. It just gives the money and invests in infrastructure. And that's why it's something different than no one ever did before, let's say, because China is investing in these countries, which are, are seen as risky in the sense that their investments, the investments in these countries are not certain to give you back the, the, uh, the return on the investment. return. Yes. 
So um, yeah, this is the big difference between the US as a donor and China as the new donor in and international. In your observations and research, um, how would you say developing countries are reacting to this? Are they quite open to the idea of, of this course, investment? Of course, yeah, because they're, they're in big need of, of uh, finances, of uh, infrastructure to uh, make their economy jumpstart, let's mm. say. So, of course, they are very willing to accept these these investments. And China needs to start also outsourcing some production. So it's you see them going to, to, to one by one world countries mm. where the, the supposedly the, the the wages and the trade unions are lower, like they have less trade unions, are have less power, let's say, less to say in these countries. So um, so it's trying to build its own global value chains in these areas. And this is why also I read an article a week ago saying that Africa is China's China because it's actually doing what, uh, let's say, American firms, Japanese firms, Korean firms did with China 20 years ago, outsourcing their low-value-added um, production to China. And now it's China doing the same to uh Central Asian countries or Africa or, you know. So the U.S. right now has taken this stand, so to speak, against China in line with President Donald Trump's own specific promises during his 2016 campaign. He's promised to ensure that the U.S. and Americans are no longer engaged in unfair trade deals. Would you say that the ongoing trade war with the U.S. is more of a hurdle rather than a full-blown obstacle? This could hurt China, but it could hurt even more, let's say, the U.S. Because a quote that I read says that Apple Apple can't build an iPhone without China. But China can build hundreds of millions of devices approaching the iPhone quality without Apple Apple's help. The fact is that Trump, I mean, tr- tr- the election of Trump resembles the American society nowadays, whereas um, basically what happened, and this is what I write in my in one of my papers, is that basically in the 2000s we had China reaching its, its it's called the Lewis turning point, that's when uh, wages, uh, the, the cheap labor dries up and wages starts increasing. At the same time you had the financial crisis of 08, 09, mm. And in, in uh, what that meant is that Western economies were not ex- importing as much from China. So China started looking somewhere else to sell their stuff, basically. And they started seeing their neighbors and their internal market. And in these, in these markets, China actually had an advantage compared to, to uh, let's say, Western companies. Because um, they have what are called like frugal innovations, like... You know the three hundred dollars laptop, which is perfect for uh, low wage uh, societies and countries, mm. which you know Western f- firms could not do. That's super interesting. Um, that quote's quite insightful, and I think telling of how powerful brands can be. And also, I would I would argue American culture. When people buy an iPhone, they're consuming American culture. You know, there are plenty, like you said. Um, of massive Chinese companies 
that just have not made it in the U.S. One, because they haven't been opened up in that market and there might not be interest either on the Chinese side when they have such a a massive national market already and regional. Um, But I, I think at the in certain instances, it comes down to buying that American dream. And I think it's fascinating hearing you speak about the Chinese dream, because this is kind of what, from what I've gathered, what I've learned today, speaking with you, Xi Jinping is doing. He's trying to make his own Chinese dream. It's it's a complete open open street for China to, to drive in if, if, if the U.S. decides to, uh, to retrieve. My conversations with David and Marco really made it clear for me that the trade spat between Washington and Beijing should be seen as an early episode in an inevitable geopolitical confrontation. And with that, I'd like to close with some predictions made by David. Effects. I think uh, in, in the short term, I think both countries will probably have to find a way forward. It's clearly already having an effect on the Chinese economy. But long term, I think we'll have some very serious effects. I think long term, I think the message has been has been received loud and clear in Beijing that you cannot count on the U.S. as a partner; that it can turn on you in ways that they hadn't expected. So, therefore, they will redouble efforts like One Belt One Road to find other friends and to make sure that they have influence and friends and trade elsewhere within the. U.S. were in uh, a cycle where there is a pulling back. Uh, globalists like myself, I must say, are are definitely on the run. Uh, we're not popular. You know, I think Trump has mm. really tapped into a feeling that globalism is bad, and so how that will play out in terms of uh, being much more isolationist, much more U.S. first, yet still finding ways to get the goods that people in the U.S. want at a reasonable price, Mm. that's a really tricky equation to solve. And uh, I don't think the U.S. has made even the first steps to finding an answer for that. You've been listening to an episode of The Kids Are All Right. It was a production from Podium.me and News Dakota. Tell us what you thought of this episode by tweeting us at KidsAllRightNews. We hope you enjoyed listening to this series of reports from young people around the world. The Kids Are All Right will be back. If you have any ideas for Season 2, email us at info at newsdecoder.com. In the meantime, rest assured, the kids are all right.